Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, screen rats, couch potatoes. Welcome to Television Times Podcast yet again. Here we are. I'm recording this uh, intro a little bit early. This one's going to come out next Wednesday. It's Friday at the moment. I've just dropped the latest episode with Jay Lafferty, which I hope you're all enjoying. Now, today's guest is the great Steve Keyworth. Now, this guy has had a varied career. He started in stand-up. He went into writing. He's written scripts for movies. He's uh, currently the scriptwriter for Doctors. He's worked on EastEnders. As I said, he's worked on movies, one with Kelsey Grammer. So there's a big story about that coming up. He also worked on this uh, mad project where he curated a different performance in each of the pods on the London Eye. And he's, he's just full of stories and full of information. This guy has uh, been through it all. It's a great, great episode. Um, I really enjoyed it. He was the first person that I'd never actually met. And we got on immediately. We started talking about urinals at one point. So there was uh, no problem in gelling. I can tell you that. Beep, beep. So to today's little gripe, I guess we can call it. Maybe that's what this will become, like a weekly gripe, like an old moan at the beginning of an episode. Should we do that? I don't think so. But um, for this one, I'm going to talk about the thing that everyone's going to be talking about right now, which is the cost of accommodation in Edinburgh. Yep. I'm going up to Edinburgh to record some of these and to see a load of shows. Really looking forward to that. I'm hoping to do some kind of like live-ish episode from there for you guys. And I'm having to stay an hour outside because it's so expensive. And I know a lot of people who are going up there who are having to camp, staying in tents, in fields. They just cannot afford it. And I know this has been brought up by many, many other people. But I'm telling you from the horse's mouth, I have worked on that Fringe Festival I know what it costs and I have seen the prices skyrocket to a point which makes it impossible, impossible for anybody really to go up there and make any money. I've talked to comedians, as you've heard on here, who sell out, make thousands, tens of thousands and end up owing the production company money. Now, that cannot be fair. And I have been in charge of those accounts. I've seen the money that comes in and I've seen the money that we charge people. And it is not fucking fair. And I'm going to say it on here. All of you, every single one of the big four production companies in Edinburgh, you need to pay your staff better. You need to sort out some fucking discount accommodation. You need to do it with the university. Whatever it is you do, you need to subsidize this or it's not going to continue. We all know what's going to happen. It's going to become for poshos only. And the only people that are going to be able to go up there are people on mummy and daddy's fucking credit card. I can't even go up there. I can't go up there and, and just stay and watch shows. The shows are cheap. I missed out on a Nish Kumar ticket for seven quid because I'm going to see something else, which I'm a bit bummed out about. But the price of the shows are fine. That's not the issue. I don't think they're very expensive or even the good ones for 20 quid. It's fine. It costs more than that to go to the cinema. But it's everything else. It's the fucking £10 toasties that you've got fucking in your courtyards. It's the ridiculous amount for the accommodation in general. It is insane. You cannot expect people to pay that to go up there. It'd be cheaper to buy a fucking house than it would be to visit that city at this point in time. Anyway, everyone have a great Edinburgh. Rant over. So here he is, soon to be your friend and mine, Mr. Steve Keyworth. It's a great chat. I really love meeting him online. Hope to meet him in person one day. Here we go. Get yourself to Edinburgh and sell those tickets, but don't expect any fucking money in return. Roll up, roll up. Welcome to Television Times, a new podcast with your host, me, Steve Otis Gunn. We'll be discussing television in all its glorious forms. From my childhood, your childhood, the last 10 years, even what's on right now. So join me as I talk to people you do know and people you don't about what scared them, what inspired them and what made them laugh and cry here on Television Times. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good. Oh, yeah. Shall I call you Steve or Stephen? 
Uh, I'm Steve. You're Steve. I'm Steve too. Yeah. Two Steves. Do we, does one of us need to be called Phyllis or something? That's uh, just very distinct. My middle name is Otis, so usually people just call me Steve Otis as if it's some kind of uh, double barrel posh name, which it is not. No, sure. It's a little bit country and western as a, as a sort of name as well, I suppose. It has that kind of... Uh, no, I think I'm thinking. I've, I've just listened to a Rich Hall audiobook. That's probably a why. Rich Hall, Otis, what's his? Otis Lee Crenshaw. Otis Lee Crenshaw. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got my coffee. This is bad timing. Sorry. And a creaky chair. No, it's fine. I've got too hot to drink right now. So at some point, I'll need to plug that. So you're my first guest on this, who I've never met. You're like the uh, friend of a friend. So it's... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And actually, Kev recommended you on like the first proper episode of this. Yeah. He was, uh, said some very kind things. Did Aww. you hear that episode or it doesn't matter? I haven't. I meant to try and um, listen to one or more before beforehand, but it's, I've been, um, yeah, children and doctoring. I'm trying to yeah pin down this doctor. In the fictional sense. Well, yes, yes. In the fictional sense rather than anything that's qualified. Yeah, so we should mention that straight off the bat. I'm assuming you're like the head writer on Doctors. I'm a call writer. What's my time? I'm, I'm one of the call writers, I think, technically. That is, um, I'm not really sure how many there are, but there's, um, yeah, mm. no, not as special as me in charge. I'd have to assassinate the others. Right. <laughs> so I watched, I watched your Joe Pasquale episode, which I was desperate to watch after I read about it. I watched it the other night. It was really weird because I've seen Doctors many, many times. Uh, it's one of those things. I worked in theatre and, and tours and stuff like that. So I'd often be, you know, in a random digs or a hotel at that time, you know, go out for lunch, come back, put on something. And then what's before Doctors? Must be something I watched. Might be like Holmes Under the Hammer and I get caught up yeah, in whatever's on like there that, and yeah. the telly doesn't go off and Doctors comes on and I think, oh, well, I'm never going to watch this. And then I watch it and then about a week later, I'm still watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found myself getting drawn into it in the same way that I guess I would have done in Neighbours or EastEnders in the 90s. Yeah, you'd watch EastEnders at Christmas because you're trapped with your parents and then um, you're like, for three weeks after that, it's like, I really know to need to know what's going on with Phil. Yeah, yeah. but you can get drawn into soaps, can't mm. you? Even if you haven't seen them for years and some come on like uh, Hollyoaks or whatever and I don't know anyone on those shows, you know, but then the one character will rock up and you'll be like, oh, I wonder what's happened in those... Um, missing years that I have no idea what's happened and you can kind of get filled in quite fast mm. a lot of a lot of information gets conveyed quite quite quickly and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you because the other night when I was watching Doctors it was about half past ten at night and my wife had already sort of gone to bed and I said oh, I've got to stay up I want to watch something and she would imagine that would be some stand-up or something a bit nighttime. Yeah. And I was like, if she walks in now and finds me watching, like, Doctors at sort of 10 at night, that's that's just quite strange, like, to be watching it at that, that time. That's probably night. subversive, to take daytime television uh, with, yeah. you know, no swearing and all that, watching in the middle of the night. Are we started? Yeah, we've started. We? Yeah, okay, yeah, good. Yeah, good. I, I thought we had. Oh, yeah, and, uh, I just maybe come should in. cut this bit where I ask whether we've started or not. No, no, I'll put that right in at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beep, beep. Watching that episode I saw the other night, the thing that immediately struck me was like, like everything, you have two stories. You have the story you're telling, Joe Pasquale, and you have this other story, which I know nothing about, a man in a car trying to work out what's going on with this uh, ah, person that's gone missing. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the stakeout. Mm. And I'm thinking, and that draws me in too. So now I'm thinking, well, what's that all about? And I was wondering, I mean, do you write consecutive episodes? So you're the one writing both arcs or is there an arc that's written by someone else who starts it and then you come in and keep that going as well as your own storyline? Uh, how, how does that work? It's impossible to, it's possible to write uh, 
double episodes and that's when you get to write two together but no i yeah. i don't write generally i've not written two in a row at any point so far right. i've pitched a couple of two-parters so how does that work do you just all you're all just talking saying well this is what this is the beginning of the season i guess you have seasons of mm. story arcs of a season and everyone's just got to write that in as well or is there someone else to write no you wrote the whole thing right so you're writing both storylines going yeah, forward. Yeah, the whole 30 minutes, yeah. And then yeah. your script editor, you get you get given a document which uh, tells you what should happen in this episode serial-wise. And mm. you, uh, and you, your script editor, as you write the script, he, he kind of corrects you and says, oh, well, that character used that exact line yesterday or they can't right. punch out a Santa Claus because we punched one out last week so they, yeah. the, your script editor gives you kind of the continuity and and um i yeah, make sure that you've got the voice right and um you know this, yeah. this maybe perhaps more this sort of thing so yeah that's interesting i wanted to see more of your storyline when she went off to be tested for this uh syndrome that makes us see everyone as joe pasquale i was mm. um, like I want to see more. I need her to see, like, I want her to go outside in, like, the whitest town in England and see, like, a hundred <laughs> Joe Pasquale's coming towards her. Yeah. Like, wig. <laughs> I think the uh, the special effects budget can stretch to maybe two Joe Pasquale's, three Joe Pasquale's mm. in a room at any point, but uh, we can't yeah, go for Malkovich. Yeah. So when you, well, yeah, Malkovich, yeah. So when you pitched that, did they, did they literally say that? Like, how are we going to do that? That's going to cost a lot. No, no. They, I didn't no. even think I'd get to have two Pasquales on screen. I didn't know that was possible. So, um, yeah, I just thought we would have to cut. We just have to swap clothes and, um, mm. you know, with the do it in a very kind of low-tech way, but I thought the story would still stand up. And in the beginning, it was a different comic oh, as right, well. That's I was kind of, every so often, I have written kind of characters with with particular names, yeah. the whole character description is a person I know. Yeah. And then I think they should cast them for that. Uh-huh. Um, but it never happens. And this time I had in mind Lee Mack because I knew right. it back in the, back when I was doing stand up, and I, and I, um, I thought he might be up for it. Um, but his agents never applied. He's just done inside number nine. Yeah. Yes. He was yeah. probably doing that. So you did stand up. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I did. I did, it, did a drama degree and I thought I was going to be a set designer and then I discovered I was a massive show-off instead and I, I started writing to perform um, at, at Manchester University in the studio group thing, which again, many years before Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson went through the same thing. Yeah, And I, um, I found out I was just better at the writing part. So I kind of very heavily went down writing for a while but couldn't get rid of the show-off bit and I realised that stand-up, you don't have to act particularly. You can look the audience in the eye and and you can test out an idea that you did that morning. So I um yeah made a pact with a couple of other drama students, and um we started a comedy night, knowing absolutely nothing. Nobody on the bill had any experience. It was utter utter madness. Wow. Uh, three of us did really well, and one person tanked very hard, and they were the sacrifice so that the rest of us could live. Okay, and I sort of pursued that in Manchester, ran some clubs, moved to London, did the same there. And then there was something, there was a kind of shift where all the middle clubs, whereas where just where that was where I was king. I was on my way up. I was on the getting paid by the middle clubs, and just a swathe of them just died, got cancelled, disappeared. So um, in the kind of early noughties. That's weird. Pubs started uh, wanting to do more food, essentially. That oh, the gastro pubs. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of renovations, and the room was never the same.
better. And then the last thing I wanted to do was go to any kind of performance, I think, in my spare time. If I did anything in my spare time, it was cinema. I'd go and see like a, I'd do a matinee of Woman in Black, go and see Nicole Kidman and the others in the in-between and then come back and do another show and have like seven hours of, you know, ghost stories or whatever. But the idea of like... Have, have you seen... Go on. Have you seen more plays than The Woman in Black? I just want to I check have seen this more plays than that, of course. I, I have seen lots and lots okay. of plays. But when you work on them... It was weird because I worked on that one and I worked on Inspector back to back for about seven years. I felt like I was working on the best two plays that had ever existed. That's what I was told by everybody. Um, but it put me off after a while. But I liked the simplicity of it and touring. It was nice to tour with a small group of people. There was camaraderie. There was, you know, no one was above anyone else. You sort of knew the actors. And if the actors had famous friends, you'd all go out together and it would all be, it was really fun. I really liked all that. But um, it's interesting you started in comedy because that's where I've ended up. Um, how did how did you find the stand-up? Did you write on stage? Did you? Well, I, I was, I sort of started in theatre first because that's what I was doing mostly in Manchester at mm -hmm. that time in, in um, kind of the Green Room Theatre and then other, I did something for the, uh, the City of Drama, this kind of big year-long festival thing where we took over this I, I like i like derelict buildings all right i've done a lot of kind of site-specific stuff in exeter and manchester and that's crazy lift-based project in edinburgh right. but um i guess the reason why i'm not an internationally famous stand-up is probably because i didn't write enough material essentially i was i would put the effort into writing mm. scripts yeah and i was starting to make a living out of that yeah um but i kind of like winging it a bit yeah with comedy and I had a certain, at the beginning, you kind of write these really, really wordy routines. Yes. And you just, <laughs> then as you do it more and more, you just cut. I know, I know. Because it's like, oh, stop explaining all of this stuff. And I've kind of got a little handful of really great one liners. Yeah. I had a bit that was, because I saw Stuart Lee, I was comparing a club in Kensington, in, no, in Kilburn, and um, I saw him do his bit about uh, the inflatable ET. And uh, after Princess Diana died, somebody leaves it by the palace gates. And he goes and sees this right. ET lying there. And there's just such a long, slow build-up where nobody's laughing for ages. But there's this tension because mm, he is being, he's, he <laughs> yeah. he's being so serious. So I had my own go at that sort of joke where you've got, you're yeah. just take, taking the piss for ages. <laughs> Because I think I remember this, uh, Flight 5065, where you were the artistic yeah. director of putting yeah. all these shows on in all the pods of the London Eye. Was it still called the London Eye then? It was. The, yeah. Is it not called the London Eye now? Has it been called oh. Boris Wheel of Fun or something? Or um. <laughs> Yeah, in each pod there's a lie. <laughs> no, there's a... <laughs> There, wasn't it called like the British Airways Sky some shit? I think the British Airways. I can't remember. It had a funny name for a while. Yeah, it was. The, it was still London. Yeah, I think British Airways was attached to it in some way, but we were allowed to call it the London Eye. I think it was called the London Eye. Didn't it go up really late because it was a Millennium project and it took longer to get up for a while? And I might be getting this wrong. I'm going to check this out. But some... I think it was the successful one. I think it was the Dome that was. Um... Was it? Yeah, we finished it. We can't, we've got nothing to put in it. We've basically created a big warehouse that um, uh, Michael McIntyre will gig in in many decades to come. But um, oh, I just got this memory of Virgin putting a poster up of the wheel sort of on the Thames flat and saying something like, BA can't get it up. I'm 100% sure they did something oh, like okay. that because it was delayed. Maybe it was only delayed a couple of years. All right. Anyway, it was it was definitely up in 2005 because we we did fill it with um, uh, all sorts of shows. I mean, I was kind of coming. My kind of area was theatre and comedy 
Um, I, we had a producer who would bring in uh, the musical act as well, and that's how we ended up with Damon Albarn and um, Beth Orton and all kinds of interesting people. Damon, fantastic! I love Blur, big fan. So, how did you? How did you get? Was there power up there? I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. How did you power that? Well, it was. Yeah, it was. I guess it was all unplugged essentially. Yeah, I, I, I managed to see Beth Orton in in the pod because I uh, I knew it was coming on. I could, the, the the interesting thing about it was that they were one of the main interesting things is you bought a ticket and you didn't know who you were going to see. Oh. And it's just like, so it was a, literally a kind of vertical roulette wheel. You would queue and queue and queue. So what, one end of the pod, you've got the act, and then you... I've never been in it, so I can't... I, they're quite big, aren't they? So at the other end... There's a bench in the middle. You get right. about 20, 25 people. So you could just buy a ticket and accidentally end up in a pod with Damon? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I might. I wrote a play... I adapted this, because uh, there was an African theme, and I adapted mm-hmm. this short story uh, by this uh, Zimbabwean writer, Rory Killalay, and... Yeah, we did a production of this adaptation in the pod. And I, so I was waiting to get in with my actors. And I could see that the pod in front of me was, was Joe Brand. Yeah. And I could see the people queuing going, it's Joe Brand. Yeah. It's Joe Brand. We're going to get in with Joe Brand. And then there was the cutoff. And they're like, we're in with the Zimbabwean short story. <laughs> Which I'm sure it was brilliant. But I would have been one of those people going, oh, man. I'm so close. But they really, they were a really good audience. <laughs> yeah. They uh they got really engaged with it, and then it was awkward because they it's all written for half hour for the length of the flight. But Damon Albarn, um, they stopped the wheel for him because they were doing a photo shoot. Yeah, our play finished, mm-hmm. and we were only at like quarter past. We're uh you know, so we just sat there with the audience going, "So that's what we've got. That's the end of it." And we ended up just having to have a chat with them a bit right. while we all looked at the House of Commons. So was it time that each um, each act would last as long as one? Yeah, turn of yeah. the wheel, and then you'd get another act in that pod each time. Is that how it went? Oh no, you got out unless yeah. you uh, unless you bought multiple tickets. It was it was something because it was on the twenty first, so it was twenty one pounds right. for a ticket, and you didn't know what you were going to get. Hmm. But it was that we tried to keep the quality up. I did have to drop one show at the last minute because it was a bag of pants. Honestly, right. it was very kind of it's a theatre piece, and it was it was um, quite patronising. And I would have been really angry if I'd paid twenty one pounds for it. And I had some good people in it, but they just kind of misjudged the tone of it um, terribly. We spent uh, like months researching different kind of acts, different kind of stories. There's a whole what do they call Afro future sort of Afro science fiction thing, which was um, really interesting. I mean, we're trying to get something from that sort of neck of the woods. And now a wiki dose of your rhino chat. I was in a toilet with, in a, I was in a cubicle. Easy. And yeah. uh, Arthur Smith and Damon Alburn came in at the same time. And we we're on a boat just to make just the boat part Push behind on. the wheel. Um, and here Arthur Smith say, I hear you've curated some music. Um to Damon Alburn, and he says, I've curated some jokes. And that was, uh, it was much better timing than that, but it's yeah. a very, very small toilet on this boat with this this kind of going on. I hope someone shouted out Park Life. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they did in the pod. I went to see Phil Wang recently up here. He was up in Newcastle. And I thought after COVID, they would get rid of those um, troughs, you know, the troughs they have in men's toilets, which women know nothing about. I thought I would never have to see another man's urine pass me like that ever again. <laughs> and I can't believe they're back. I thought at least they're gone. At least they're gone. They yeah. won't come back, will they? They're back in. They're back with a vengeance, those things. Comedy clubs, they've all got them. Horrible. I'm, I'm in this arts building in Norwich. We've got like two toilets here. There's a bar and a club night. And, and uh, my, over here, I've got a drag performer and over here there's a painter it's 
very artistic. Ooh. Anyway, upstairs, toilet area, two cubicles in a, in a car, a corridor, and then yeah. a, a, one of those trough urinals with a curtain. With a curtain? With a curtain. So you just draw a curtain, yeah. What, in the individual? In the, in the, essentially in the corridor, huh. there is, and you're, there's this trough, and then there's a curtain. It's like the... You're like, like pissing like the Wizard of Oz, essentially. <laughs> You're just sort of. Uh, There's got to be some comedy in that. I've never used it. I don't believe in the. I don't believe in the curtain. The curtain is not enough security. No, the curtain. For me. It sounds like a really posh glory hole or something. Yeah, it's not. Oh, no, it's a black curtain. <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah, <laughs> it's like fringe theatre black curtain. It's not posh. Oh, I thought you were talking like big heavy red drapes, <laughs> golden tassels. Well, it only goes down to kind of. Uh, I got no thigh height as well, so you know. Right. So you're still like standing. I just think I just think it's the weirdest thing in the modern world with everything. You know, you got Elon Musk trying to go into space and things like that, and go to Mars, and we're still pissing next to each other within an inch. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I just don't do that anymore. I'm, a, I'm a sit down guy. I'm just like, I don't want to, don't want to do that. Don't want to eat jacket potatoes. Don't want to eat flapjacks. They're just ultimately I can't eat jacket potatoes anymore. I can't. If I eat a jacket potato, me and my wife literally go, "Well, that's us up at three a.m. having a, a, a liter piss." You know, I don't know what it is about eating wow. a potato now, but man, man alive, if I eat a jacket potato, it's like I've had four beers just before bed. That's, that's strange. I mean, it's, it's a skill. A you just kind of liquidize potato and shoot it out in some... <laughs> Maybe it's the half-Irishness of me. I, mean, I should be able to sort of deal with it. Better. I just get very bored of jacket potatoes. They just taste, there's like, there's never enough sauce on it. It's, um... Well, uh, there is a trick to a jacket potato. that I can make a jacket potato delicious to you. I did this thing called the GM diet a couple of times to try and lose weight. Not fast, but yeah. just, I use it now and again. I do it about once a year. It seems to happen. I don't plan it. But it's just when my tastes get out, out of sync, when I've had too much salt or too much sugar for too long, say Christmas, you know, too much rubbish in the house, and I want to reset my palate, I do the GM diet. And what it does is you eat fruit one day, vegetables the next, and then on like the third or fourth day, you're allowed a baked potato with just a little bit of salt and pepper. Yeah. And I, I swear it is the most delicious thing you'll ever eat in your life. It's because you've been deprived, yeah. but it resets, it resets, and it tastes no butter, nothing, mm. just plain with some salt and pepper. I, trust me, if you just have three days of palate cleansing, you will... Uh, You'll find the baked potato to be very, very delicious. I'm sceptical. <laughs> yeah, you should be. <laughs> oh, I do want to ask you about this film you, you punched up, Breaking the Bank. Yeah. What was that all about? That was a... I used to go to this writer's group in London called Script Tank, and then you just, yeah. every Wednesday night or every fortnight, you would kind of read out a script and writers would give you feedback. And uh, I did that for years and that's how I met my wife, uh, seriously. But um, one time there was this guy that I'd met and he was a producer and he uh, he was kind of, anyway, he got me involved because I was writing funny script and he got me involved on this, to do a rewrite on this film. And um, I met the original writer who's called, who's called Roger. He's a banker, and we met him um, in this at the beginning. I mean, he's posh as hell. We're in. We met in this kind of boardroom, and and he said, uh, "I'm not really a writer. I just I wrote this. I went on holiday on my on my to my villa or my yacht. I forget which, but you know, this like the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, I have a go. And uh, I've never seen a film, but I wrote this film. But uh, you can change anything you like. And he was like, oh, okay. And so I read the script, and the banking was really interesting. 
the jokes were all stolen from greeting cards oh. and those amusing emails oh. that go around at work. Oh, and God. the best stuff, there were like three Les Dawson, classic Les Dawson gags. Yeah, yeah. And then there was a lot of stuff that was racist. There was a lot of stuff that was sexist and very 1970, in a, racist, sexist in a 70s way rather than a, you know, a right. bank, not even like contemporary banking city racism, really old racism. Um, and so I... Mm. I kind of did a rewrite on it and I tried to be respectful to the material, but I did have to change anything that was racist, stolen or sexist, which meant a lot of stuff got changed. And then the day, like literally the week before I hand this in, he rings me up, Roger the banker, and says, I've been thinking about this. Yeah. And I, I don't think you need to change any of the dialogue. And I was like, oh God, that's really very much the worst of it. So I handed it in, found out later, he hated it with a vengeance. Oh, really? And that was, I had to write the whole thing. I had to do the rewrite in about three weeks. It was an insane period. So, yeah. and then we did a read through at Script Tank um, to test it out so that I could just make the final changes. And then we invited Roger and, and he came straight from Ascot with a couple of people. They were all wearing hats and they turn up halfway through and listen to this, said nothing to me and left. Uh-huh. And then, but you know, I was getting paid. So fine. Then I thought it was a vanity project. Never happened. And then they came back like, Four years later, uh, Tom, the, the producer, and they got other people involved and more money. And that meant, because Roger was going to put in half a million, and we could film it at his house. Um, Who is this guy? <laughs> Let me check this out. He is the same personality as Trump in that right. he, you know, he was got very annoyed one time because they wouldn't let him land his helicopter on a golf course. Right. Just, why can't I just, uh, you know, can always fix it afterwards. Yeah. So more money was involved. They wanted me to do another rewrite. And they said, I could, you could do, Anything you like this time, literally anything. And Roger is not the only investor at this point. So you're allowed to, it's not his opinion that mattered. So I fixed it, essentially. The problem was, the first draft, it was breaking the bank. And the bank doesn't get broken for about the first hour and a quarter. So you know that's going to happen. And the lead character does not bank up to the bank until... So what you needed to do was just do it first 10 minutes mm-hmm. so i did a sort of hangover format on it and that he goes on the piss and wakes up he's destroyed everything and he has to work out what happened and then he has to try and fix yeah. it so i just try to fast forward through that first hour and a bit and i just put lots of comedy in it i reread this script recently i'm really it was like this is great i do remember um, watching it i, I know i've seen it because i saw oh, it's, it's not a good film you've got to watch it with the sound angle it looks like a film <laughs> but i rewrote it and uh, this time, with the director, Vadim Jean, who directed all those, you know, who did Leon Pig Farmer back in the day. Yeah. Um, and at that point, they were telling me as well, we're going to get Kelsey Grammer, we've got Tamsin Gregg, we've got Matthew Horne, we've got all these people. That's like, blimey. Anyway, so I kind of, and Vadim Jean loved this script. So this is the best script I've, um, you know, the dialogue in this is amazing. And it's, it's, but Roger hated it so much, it made him ill, physically ill. He got some kind of urine infection or, or just some sort of, he lost his mind with his, how much he hated this thing because I mm. just trashed it. So in the end, the film has mostly come back to, well, it, whether this moral of the story is billionaires get what they want or millionaires get what they want. It probably wasn't quite a millionaire. But so there was a screening in the West End yeah. uh, during the day in, in, in Leicester Square. And I, I went with a few friends to see it. And, and then we, we got drunk. And there's like one scene in it where that's exactly my scene. That's a really funny scene. Everybody laughed at that scene. Okay. But there's a lot of the, the sexist and racist stuff 
um, and women being two-dimensional, it came back, all came back. This is where we tentatively and carefully discuss Kelsey Grammer. I won't have a bad word said against the man. He did a solid job with mm. what he was given. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's great in Frasier. He, he could deliver funny it's material. coming back, isn't it? But there was a madness like, Kelsey's going to do it for not very much money, but we have to put him up in Claridge's with in his usual room with the white piano in it. Does he like to play the uh, theme tune to Frasier or something? <laughs> I think that's, it. that's exactly it. You know that's what his breakfast order is anyway. <laughs> Yeah, cereal. cereal. It's clear cereal. You wrote on EastEnders as well. I just want to kind of know because I've been to the EastEnders set a couple of times just to see Mm. it, and that that was fun. And I also, when I was on tour in Australia, I was at the Neighbours set um, Mm. when it was in the old school in Melbourne where they filmed it. It was basically like an old school. And... I was like blown away by, do you know neighbors? Do you know the people in it? Like Stefan Dennis playing Paul, people like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, we went there um, as the sort of, you know, the British play that's in town. So we were all treated really well and we all got backstage and we got to meet the, meet the cast. Some of them, I think, are in films now. Um, and I was just amazed at how quick they filmed it. And I was wondering if EastEnders and Doctors is, is similar because what they would do in Neighbors is he would like, all I remember is he was in his kitchen, he got the lines just before, he said it three times. As we went on to the next scene, there was someone to my left. And I said, what are they doing? They said, oh, they're editing. They edit the show live. They literally start editing as the scene is finished. Oh, blimey. I was, I was wondering if, uh, if our soaps uh, made that fast, because neighbours, they're churning that out like, uh, like AI. I don't think they're doing that. I think they kind of wait for a day's filming and then they... Um... And then they edit it. I don't know if they're doing sort of production-y, post-production things as it goes along. It's fast. Doctors is fast because there mm. are, I mean, five episodes a week, uh, which slowed down during the pandemic. But um, yeah, that's the, that's the fastest one. And then EastEnders is quite fast, but there's a little bit more kind of wiggle room there. Um, at least there was when there were there, uh, three episodes a week. And are you on set a lot for these things? or I, I went I went a couple of... I've, I did like three EastEnders. Um, I've been to Doctors a couple of times. I've, I've done about 60 episodes, I think. Um, because it's so fast, it's definitely worth doing if you're a writer, just to see how it all works. It's not that edifying to see your words done. The best time I've had on set is watching someone else is being filmed because I was interested in applying for a director scheme. So you're completely unattached to it. The first time I went to watch an episode of Doctors being filmed, I thought I'd written a comedy script. And they they were filming it as a tragedy. And my editor never mentioned the fact there was a character who had had an accident, a car accident, and he was using a wheelchair. And I thought, well, he's going to get better. He's one of the regulars. Um, they, he never they never told me that there was a question about whether he would ever walk again. So I'd given him lines, kind of quips like, "I won't get up," and he delivered them like, "I won't get up." It was gruesome. It was gruesome to watch that game filmed. But it taught me a lot about what I should put in this, you know, be very clear what you're going with. State, you know, directions are important. Did you have any funny interactions with any of the cast members on EastEnders? I met Barbara Windsor and she thought, she said, did I write the whole thing? And I, uh, in retrospect, I sort of said, yes, it's all me. It's more me. Yeah. But it must be mad the first time you write something and it comes out of someone else's mouth. Even if they're not doing it with the intention that you have, it must still be quite incredible. It is, yeah. I used to I used to get people round for afternoon drinks when my episodes were on, you know. 
Well, I started when I had radio play on before that, and so we we'd had, had kind of a listening party. A couple of first couple of doctors, we got, I got people around in the East Enders. But then once you get to sixty, you, he means sixty episodes, of course, not the age sixty. You can't keep drinking through all of the episodes, <laughs> yeah. otherwise you've got a real problem. You'll end up on doctors. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the episodes. I've been drinking yeah. so much, everyone's turned into Benny Hill. <laughs> performance that you saw when you were young that influenced your writing i mean friday night live seeing that when i was a kind of young teenager i was looking at clips of that yesterday how strange is that i haven't watched they did a kind of reboot like a one-off didn't yeah. they, in the spring and my wife wants to watch it with me so i have no we have not watched it yet it's it's uh yeah, i haven't i would have just burned through it but i just you know ben elton rick mail adrian edmondson all those people on yeah. the show. and then what people like the dams doing eloise and there was a guy with uh like a flip chart and pictures of owls one week <laughs> and the owls just had really funny expressions the sort of picture of owls baby, fluffy owls yeah. that people love on the internet now but he would you know we just had to wait for a guy to point at them with a stick in those days. And there was just some really weird stuff, and that was great. Yeah. Oh, and Press Gang. I've just Press finally Gang, found yeah. a copy of Press Gang on DVD. <laughs> really? Um, You're going to rewatch yeah. it? Dexter Fletcher and Julia Sorn. Yeah. I've not rewatched it yet, but because I've, I've been rewatching, my daughter, 12 year old, is watching Doctor Who for the first time, and we've just right. hit Moffat sort of oh. showrunner time. So, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. I haven't seen anything past Eccleston, weirdly, because of work. Mm. And I'm waiting to watch it with my kid. And we tried to watch the first episode of his season from, what, 2006. And it was all like mummies in the basement. And he, he got scared and went, no, no, this is a, still too early. I think my eight-year-old's joined us now. She's nearly nine. Uh, she's joined us for Matt Smith and mm. Moffat because I think it's more fun right. at that point. I think sometimes uh, Russell T. Davis's earlier episodes is, a, is the tone is a bit somewhere between a proper kids show when you've got kind of pictures coming to life. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's quite adult, are Rose and Mickey going to get a hotel room in Cardiff? And there's a discussion that episode as well about is the death penalty ever justified? No, right. So so I found like some of the tone in his, really just when you're watching it with your kids, it's, yeah. it's tricky. Right, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Whereas, whereas, what's the death penalty, yeah. Dada? Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. Well, Doctor yeah. Who often comes up in the, as an answer to this question, so I'll jump straight to it. But I do want to mention, I cannot believe how young Ben Elton was when I was watching Friday Night Live, because I looked at it yesterday. Yeah. And when I was a kid, he was like, in my mind, a 30-something-year-old guy doing comedy. Turns out he's like 11 years older than me or something. It's like nothing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it makes no sense. Everyone's got younger. I don't know what's going on. Mm. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, but because you were talking about Doctor Who, can you remember a TV show as a kid that scared the shit out of you? I mean, the stuff in that drama rama slot, actually. The Chocky uh, was pretty damn spooky. What's Chocky? Tell um, me about that. Chocky is based on a John Wyndham story. And it was it's this just kind of kind of weird flashy light in the corner of like the, you know the corner of the room that is your friend but right. is a sort of weird like charlie the road safety cat oh yeah and a more slightly more articulate Mommy oh, says. Word, actually yeah. words. but it's um i saw it on a list of spooky things recently but there were other other kind of one-off drama because it was one-off dramas and then there yeah. were a few series that kind of went along which i think chalky and i think press gang kind of as well but there were kind of some spooky ones in there I don't know you enough to ask this question. This is a weird one. Huh. Okay. 
Who or what? That time we were in Vegas together. No. <laughs> Who Sorry, or what <laughs> was the first person or character you saw on screen that made you feel funny in your loins? <laughs> uh, it would probably be Princess Leia. Ah. I am a, in, in, in traditional Star Wars white robe rather than, you know, not, not Return of the Jedi. Did you see that at the cinema as a kid or did you watch it at home on video? There was this weird thing. I was in the Cubs and there was a thing at Christmas where this guy would turn up with a projector and he'd show you cartoons and then just, there was like a 20-minute version of Star Wars. Huh. Um, so I never, I only I saw Empire in the cinema first. I didn't see Star Wars till it got re-released again. Right. Uh, or, you know, videos. Uh, yeah, until a lot later. Was it that Christmas thing they did? Because they did a little 20-minute Christmas thing. No, no, it was a 20-minute version of Star Wars where essentially mm. they just rescue Princess Leia from the Death Star. And right. then shoot some TIE fighters and go, hey, everything's fine. And they fly away. <laughs> it's like a TikTok edited video. It's like what I do with my kids to let him watch Venom, take all the bad bits out. So he thinks it's a comedy. <laughs> yeah. Was there any like uh, children's TV that you rushed home to see that you had a little thing for? I mean, I did really kind of connect with Press Gang and that that central kind of will they, won't they thing. And then, mm. and then Moonlighting. I was mad for Civil Shepherd and Bruce Willis for... for yeah. yeah. No one said that. Moonlighting, that was out in, what, the mid-80s? You'd only been a teenager. That was aimed at, like, 30-year-olds or something, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was in my, yeah, 12, 13. I was in the Scouts by that point because I was a very cool child. The Cubs and the Scouts. I went on to be in Venture Scouts. I stuck with that thing all the way. So tell me about Scouts, actually. I'll ask you honestly because I do... So if my boy was to show interest in that, I do, I do get worried about those clubs where kids go on their own with men who it just I, it links to me a little bit to like I, I grew up in Ireland and I went to for a bit of it and I went to school where taught by priests yeah. um, who used to beat the living shit out of us so I, I'm very skeptical of that entire world and, and for me like Cubs yes. and Scouts kind of links to it in a way and I don't know whether I would I mean I do know if someone says oh do you want to join the Scouts I go no way bunch of pedos but obviously not but like how <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. That that worry is there. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I don't know why I'd be worried now in the time where it's way more safe than it was, say, 30 years ago. But like, what can you tell me to uh, reassure me on that if they wanted to do it? I never, I mean, I never, I don't remember any, any even weirdness in, in the, mm. in the scouts. Other so than, what did it teach you? I was just, yeah, it was this kind of place in Nottinghamshire, Walesby Scout Centre, where you would, it was just wilderness essentially, with a freezing pool and a tuck shop. Um, right. And you would go and you would camp and you would do these kind of night orienteering exercises and, and um, tie bits of log together. And I, I can I can remember no knots. I feel like I learn a lot of oh, knots. Oh, really? You were just literally going to yeah. save it because I can't tie my laces. I still make knots out of my shoes. So I was thinking if I'd have gone to the Scouts, maybe I could tie my laces, but yeah. apparently not. Well, no, I know enough to say if I've got to tie some things together, it's like, well, that's not enough. I've just got to keep going, yeah. essentially. <laughs> just kind of monotid, not relentlessly. Oh. That's better. Working in theatre was a nightmare for me because you're supposed to know all that stuff. And mm. it's the one thing I definitely didn't know. There's oh. one thing. And people would go, oh, you tie that speaker, tie that light, and mm. can you do a blah, blah, blah knot in it? And I'd be like, oh, fuck. 
I can't do the knot. No, I can't. So I get, oh, I'm not very good at knots. Could you do that? Or I tie something that no one could undo the other end. I was like, I just could never keep it in my head. I yeah. don't know what it is. Just can't do knots. I've cut so many shoelaces off. So many. <laughs> the scissors out. Yeah. And even now, when I, I don't know if it's like a thing where you tell yourself what you are, but like when my daughter says, can I wear these shoes? And I always opt for the non-lace ones if I can, because it's like, uh, that's a mummy thing. If you want those laced up, you have to talk to your mother. <laughs> I do tie my shoelaces differently to pretty much anyone I've ever met. Okay. How do you do that? I don't think it's that. Can you it's, explain? It's, uh, I'd get two loops and tie them around each other. And I think everyone else is going one loop, one other, one dangly bit, and you tie it around. Yeah, they have a bunny rabbit thing now, don't they, where they go one ear, two ears, up and through. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the kids learn it. There's a seven. I remember we, being... we didn't learn with cute bunny rabbits. We learned, you know, gravel. <laughs> TV show you liked, or maybe even like now, that you a little bit embarrassed to admit. I watched all of the OC. As far as I also watched Smallville, which I'm angry about. Smallville, Smallville. Are you? Yeah, that does seem like an almost waste of time. Just, just fly already. You irritating <laughs> bastard. Just so long. Oh my gosh. He learned, if he remembers he remembers to fly, he learns how to fly, and then he forgets, and it's just oh and, really. And he doesn't. It was okay at the beginning. And then I'm embarrassed that I kept going with it because I was just going fly, just fly, get up in the air. Fly. Sometimes you get caught though. You you yeah. invested. You have to you have to find out what happens. I was watching a Spanish drama called Entrivias. I think it's called Wrong Side of the Tracks here, which I thought was all right because it has a uh, what's his name Jose Conrado, which I like him in everything. And my wife came in again, sort of like doctor's time at night, you know, before question time, the half hour I get when she wants to go to bed early. She goes, what are you watching? I said, no, it's, it's all right. It's good. It's like a Spanish drama. She goes, it looks like a fucking telenovela because everybody's doing the kind of overacting. And, yeah, like, yeah. You know, and, I goes, and then suddenly I saw it that way and I was like, oh, yeah, this is shit. <laughs> but I still watched it. Mm. I still had to know what happens. I need to know what the old man in the hardware store is going to do to the thugs in the area, yeah. in the neighborhood. <laughs> but like, you do get caught up in it. If you're like, it's very hard, I think, with, especially with content now, to give up on something. So to admit to yourself that you've wasted that amount of time, like me and my wife, I don't know how this happened. I really don't know how this happened. I've actually not answered this question myself because a new question. Mine is ugh, married at first sight, Australia, right? Oh my gosh. Now yeah. I know it's shit. It's absolute God awful trash. And it's nothing I would normally watch. I don't watch anything like that ever, but we got caught up and Every year we'll say we're not going to watch it. And then January comes along and we start watching it direct from Australia. Don't ask me how. And um, yeah, at one point, about 20 episodes in, we're like looking at each other. Going, Should we? These people are awful. Should we just stop watching this? Yeah. And I was like, no, well, we can't. It finishes in two weeks. We've got to know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got to know who ends up with. No one ends up with anybody. Everybody hates each other. And, and it's all sort of semi fake anyway. I, d I don't know how to stop it. And now we've, we've vowed that we will not watch it anymore. So now we've, uh, we've just like Kev, we got uh, caught up by traitors, got completely uh, drawn yeah. in by traitors and are now going, oh man, I need more traitors. So, and I don't, I, it sounds like a lie, but I don't watch a lot of reality TV. It's like that, The Apprentice, maybe, probably not anymore. Um, do you watch reality TV? You reality I, I, TV everybody gets suckered in at some point. I mean, I have, we spent, well, some years watching when we had small children, babies, I think that's what they're called. Um, mm. Watching Simon Cowell, the Simon Cowell singing shows and hating yourself for doing that. Um, yeah. It was with The Apprentice. We were going to give it up. And then there was that season, maybe two years ago, where 
They had to design a logo for a boat and they designed something that looked like a poo, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's what the expert said. And now you can yeah, see yeah. it coming. It best, best case scenario, it's a rotten banana, but it also looks like a floating turd. And then the following week, the uh, same team invented a toothbrush um, and they went, oh, it's a wand. We should do it brown. It's like, it looks like a poo yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that yeah, was, the old that brown was gold. Wand. That series was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But then the next series, I just like, I don't, I don't care about any of these people anymore. They're just kind of, yeah. they're not interestingly excitingly dumb and it's usually cakes or botox these days it's like somebody's it's a baker or a chain of beauty salons mm. or something really boring i like it's like dragon's den I, I want every time someone walks through that door apparently it's a lift i don't know if i believe it when they walk through that door i always am thinking please be an invention even if it's rubbish be an invention don't be a sauce or a vegan cupcake <laughs> or whatever it is i want it to be like yeah. you know <laughs> they've already had the sauces they can't keep coming in with something. reggae reggae sauce mm. that's it there's one source it's not no. it's not it's not an invention you don't have leonardo da vinci like <laughs> inventing pesto or something like that i mean that would be impressive actually but uh but yeah it's not does not count as an invention it's a source what do they call things in norwich because i live in newcastle and i've had to adapt to uh instead of like hp or ketchup they say do you want red sauce or brown sauce which i think is quite strange but... um i think no i think it's just ketchup i don't think it's, it's not like going to edinburgh going salt sauce which I yeah. have to go, yeah, that's exactly, I'm completely, I, I completely live here. I'm not culturally, yeah. I'm not going to ask for vinegar, like some sort of psychopath. I don't um, order porridge. Yeah. Do you go up to Edinburgh a lot then? Or? I, ha- I did, oh my gosh, I've done about 14 or 15 Edinburghs um, and every, starting in children's theatre, then mm-hmm. theatre, <laughs> and then yeah. stand up and then improv and I did the TV festival one year because we got shortlisted for a thing and then. Um, nice. Yeah, I found out you can you can really it's possible to destroy your body in a weekend at the TV festival in the same way that you might do it in a month if you were, you know, you can really fast forward the process. I ended up having a I ended up having a curry with um, Chris Chibnall and Neil Cross, which randomly because I met with a friend and they were there and I was yeah. very excited because I'm a big fan of Luther and I'd read a lot of his novels as well and mm. to meet Neil Cross and Luther is so dark but he ordered a korma and this kind of uh, slightly perturbed me. <laughs> because <laughs> it comes out the way it goes in yeah it's just it's just it's yeah the mo- the least dangerous it's the, you know the yeah. curry for people who don't like curry that much yeah i've been up since it really got crazy i used to just kind of go and wing it a little bit sometimes i was just going for a short journey i remember going up to edinburgh during the fringe to see like early 2000s i went to see ben folds play live in edinburgh and i got a room in a hostel off princess street Mm. near my mate the twin room and we went to see ben folds and we went back we didn't even know the fringe was on until we got there (laughs) (laughs) it was just like there were rooms available and now i mean good luck good luck there he goes again banging on about edinburgh as usual so steve yes probably from childhood because you know the era we both grew up in i mean a lot of people do and they grow up in their childhood time yeah yes <laughs> what's the tv show that you saw on television growing up that you would consider to be absolutely unacceptable by today's standards i feel like there were some television programs for kids that were just so boring i mean i'm not a, i know why don't you i think people are a lot very nostalgic about why don't you because of the theme tune but they could swing from like the fun ones to 
this is this is really bad, but there is nothing else. Why aren't they showing one of those uh, Bugs Bunny movies, which are essentially just cartoons back to back for an hour and a half? That's when I was kind of kind of in heaven. I don't remember the content of Why Don't You, but it was the only show I remember that was presented by kids. I guess quite obnoxious ones. Was it Welsh? Was it HTV? I feel like there were different regional versions. It might have shifted a bit. I don't know. It's all foggy. Yeah. But there, so nothing, nothing terrible, terrible. Just kind of things that were kind of boring. I've rewatched some. Uh, Hello, hello. I saw an episode a couple of few years. Well, say anytime you see a couple of years, <laughs> yeah. it's now about five. Two thousand five. Yeah, absolutely. Pre-pandemic, <laughs> had some years, and I laughed again. Yeah, is it is it okay? Yeah, it was all the the candle with the handle and the gato on the gato from the chateau, which contains mm. the picture of the fallen Madonna with the big boobies. Yeah, yeah. and I I laughed. That was huh. caught me off guard, and I did just watch all of that stuff. I guess because there was no choice and and Heidi High and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I remember feeling like this is when Heidi High is is really starting to lose it now. It's not the high the high bar that it was at the start. <laughs> I've, I've worked with Sue Pollard. She's a very nice woman, mm. but, but only if the sound works. Sortez ce putain de son. I remember my nan really liked Hello Hello, mm. and I'm going to say late eighties, early nineties. I took her as a treat to see Hello Hello live at the London Palladium. <laughs> I saw a live show of it. Wow. And everyone was in it. It was all the originals. And it was very funny. I just wonder how it would have aged, how all the uh, gags and the sexism. And I'm, I guess it's not racist, is it? I mean, I'm no. doing a funny French accent. Um, I guess that's one of the accents we're still allowed to do somewhere or form. It Ain't Half Hot Mum is, uh, oh. felt a bit iffy at the time, even. And there was, but then I was at a comedy event run by BCG Pro in the. And back in May, and there was a guy in the pub afterwards who was bemoaning the fact that we couldn't make it ain't half hot bun anymore. We well, um, could, but you'd get actual Indians. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, but yeah, it would be. You just don't need a blackout anymore. No, this is right. This is right. And it sort of survived because of Windsor Davis is is a that Ooh, personality. Yeah, yeah. And the Dom Dewey's he was he this short guy with the hat, and he was always playing. I had a Saturday job in a shoe shop later on, and he kept singing his songs. He was coming to sell yeah, an album yeah, in I shopping centres quite a lot. Um, Don Estelle, you've just Don reminded Estelle. me. Is that, is Don it? Estelle, yes, that's yeah, what I, mean. I met yes. him in Peterborough Woolworths selling his album when I was about fourteen. <laughs> yes, I oh, remember same this period of time. I would yeah, say, yeah, 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 yeah. Don Estelle. Oh man, you just give me that name out of nowhere. Yeah, no, that's the one. Not Dom DeLuise. I don't know that Don Estelle. That is, but, uh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Did he have a name in it, like Lofty or something? Was he called? Did he have one of those? Yeah, he was, which is funny down because it makes him sound like he's tall, but hilarious. he's not tall. Yeah, that's yeah. what they did. Everything was in reverse. Mm. <laughs> and there was the yeah. I guess they had like the first overtly gay character I think I ever saw. What was his name? The guy who played the camp guy. He was always dressed up as a woman and stuff like that. And I never saw that before. When that guy came on, I lived with my nan and granddad, so I was like a generation behind's viewpoint in my lounge. And my granddad would say very awful things about that character, as you could imagine. Yeah. A 60-year-old man in the 70s would be saying. Melvin Hayes. Uh, there Melvin we go. Hayes, of course. Melvin Hayes. The f- yeah. Definitely the first overtly gay character I ever saw on television. 100%. Is it? Is, are you being served as well? Is the uh, is that same kind of period? Which one came first? It's. I, they were reshowing oh, the yes. movie on Channel 5 or something. Well, that hasn't dated that very was, well, I would no, imagine. That was very... That's going to be... Full of ass grabbing and, and mm. harassing women, I would was, imagine. Yeah. The hairdresser character has like five buttons undone. It's like pretty much like bare chested. Really? Just really shirt goes all the way down. 
You know, oh, is it the kind of uh, yeah. denim denim advert for men? The kind of no, 70s hairy yeah, it's chest a kind thing, of more or? of a floral or kind of light silky shirt. Right. Uh, now you're I'm making me think of. Um, God, I'm getting them all mixed up now. Reggie Perrin, the original Reggie Perrin, wasn't there a character like that in Reggie Perrin as well? Yes, yes, there was. I think, yeah. there, I think there was as well. So yes, but it was part. It was the joke. They were the butt of the joke. It's the yeah. problem with all of that. I think. But it ain't our fault, Mum. God. And Windsor Davis did another thing, didn't he? Um, Never the Twain. Never the Twain. Yeah. Never the Twain, where they were, he was an antique seller with the other guy. Small bridge. I just remember used to go around saying, Donald, Donald, yeah, yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah. I used to watch that. I bet it was terrible for us to watch that now. Yeah. I, I remember these some of these things quite fondly, and I sometimes still do a kind of... Sort of yeah, yeah. Actually, it sounds more like, more like Colonel K than... Or Lobby Boy. ...than either of them at the moment, but... Um, well, a good thing to end on, then, is you are apparently, whether this is true or not, writing a sitcom. Is that correct? I've got a couple of things. I've got something called Here Comes the Science with the same producer who did Breaking the Bank. He's oh. kind of, uh, it kind of came, this was the script that got me into Breaking the Bank in the first place, actually. And he's always liked it. And he's got a new company now. And they've been doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff with, um, there's a blockbuster film made and they do those documentaries that go on the DVD release or oh, two, right. but they're trying to make original content. So he's trying to sell that. And I'm working on another um, script with a writer, Alia Solomon, which my agent really loves. And he, we're hoping to get that out ASAP, really. So Is that comedy or drama? Or? It's comedy. It's something we kind of collaborate on together. It's, um, I feel I'm being a bit mysterious. Oh, it's okay. You it's, don't have to give too much away if you don't want Yeah, to. I don't really want to say too much about that. That's moment, fine. But that's, no worries. That's, no worries. it's kind of, kind of quite a simple premise, but quite yeah. a different kind of world. And I'm really excited about that one. Yeah. It's sort of mainstream in a way. It got turned down by Channel 4, and they said, we really like it, but it's probably more in that sort of ghosts, BBC One BBC. kind of thing. So yeah. Get some of that yeah, ghost cash. Go Bit of that ghost action, absolutely. But the other one is, is it's all new. So I'm, yeah. and I feel really good about it. And having a co-writer as well, you can both extra excitement. You can make each other excited. Mm. And I'm looking forward to that getting out there. Uh, but then there is the possibility of you got to you got you got to stick your neck out, haven't you? There may be rejections, and that's always yeah. A lot of the stuff I really like turns out to be like pet projects that people had on the back burner for decades, and yeah. they finally get to do. So you know, good luck with that. I hope that mm. works out for you. Cheers, Both thank you. Projects sound, sound great. So we've already talked about your upcoming projects, so we don't need to plug anything. So all I need to do is say thank you, Steve, for coming on to Television Times podcast. This episode will be out just for your benefit in. August the... Beep, beep. I thought you were going to say, at, at half past three today. <laughs> so you're not editing it live, you know, like on Neighbours. Insert theme tune of Neighbours here. Actually, don't. We can't afford it. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it, especially since we have never met. You're my first uh, unmet guest. Is that words? Is that, is that how you write words? You're right. Those, those words could work. Unmet, I mean, they sort of unmet have. Unmet word? Yeah. Unmet man? You're the first unmet man. Unmet man. <laughs> Makes me sound slightly mafia. I haven't been met yet. I want to be a met man. <laughs> All right, thanks, Steve. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks. I'll stop me. the recording now. Cheers. All right. Steve Keyworth there. What a great guest. Fun guy, right? Who knew writers could be funny? He's a funny writer. Funny man. He came up with a lot of good gags in that, I thought. Uh, I really enjoyed that chat to him, considering he is, as we said, an unmet man. 
So the song I've got for you today is called The Dogs of New Orleans. It's from the album We Are Animals from 2006, recorded in Japan. I wrote this one uh, as a direct sort of response to Hurricane Katrina in 2004. And, um, yeah, I, I just love this fucking song. It's really short. It's really quick. Uh, it just gets to the point. A couple of choruses, a bit of a banging vocal. And, um, yeah, it's over in seconds. Uh, a bit like many things in life. I would like you to uh, tell me if you like this one because a lot of people tell me it's their favourite track of mine. Uh, that's why I'm popping it on here now for all of you before it gets remastered properly at some point in the future. Okay, here it is, The Dogs of New Orleans. You know, God is looking down on all this and if they are not doing everything in their power to save people, they are going to pay the price. Loving comes from nothing and now nothing is free We're fighting for survival in this new century It can weigh you down Get you praying on your knees When the river comes We'll be bursting at the seams Don't get left behind Like the dogs of New Orleans dogs uh, were left uh, roaming the streets of New Orleans and died during that period. Uh, a bit dark, isn't it? A bit dark. A lot of people too, of course. I'm just uh, taking that one point to write a song about. Uh, it wasn't really about dogs though, was it? You could work that out. Okay, guys, I hope you like that. I'm sound like a YouTuber. Okay, guys, I uh, hope you liked uh, this episode this week. Uh, please come back next week for more. Imagine if I talk like that. Fucking hell. Anyway, see you next week, guys.